Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? We are so excited for our guest today. Dax Devlin Ross is an author, an activist, an educator, and a fierce social and civil rights leader. He's dedicated and committed his life to identifying and dismantling structures of power and privilege. He holds a Juris Doctorate from the prestigious George Washington Law School. He's been honored by the National Association of Black Journalists for his investigative reporting, and he's been featured and recognized in some of the most esteemed forums, from Time Magazine to The Guardian to The New York Times and The Washington Post, just to name a few. He's authored six books, including his newest, Letters to My White Friends, which we can't wait to hear about today. We are so honored to have him here and share his story and his truth. Welcome. Wow. And thank you so much for having me. But also, I love that introduction. I want to listen to this guy talk now. Who's he got to say? <laughs> thank you. It's all about you. <laughs> so, Dax Devlon Ross, what a name. Where did you get this name? It's amazing. <laughs> well, so my dad and my mom went to see a movie back in the early 70s called The Adventurers, which was based off of a book by the same name, The Adventurers. And this film started some of the big Hollywood actors of its day, like Candace Bergen was in it. And um, I'm trying to remember some of the other big names in it. But I've seen this film on Netflix, and it's not a very good, good film at all. It's a terrible film. But the main character's name is Dax. And he's a, a young kid who grows up to become this, what I call a swashbuckler. He sees his entire family killed in front of him and he seeks revenge and vengeance and he becomes an international playboy. It's a whole thing. And I think my parents must have seen it like, that's going to call him Dax. Now, fast forward when in my mid-20s, I decided to do a little research and try to understand what does Dax even stand for? Because throughout my life, I'd ask my dad, like, what does it mean? My mom, what does it mean? And no one had an answer for me. When I found the book that it was based on, I got the acronym. The acronym DAX stands for Diogenes Alejandros Zenos. Diogenes was the original philosopher, cynic philosopher from antiquity. I'm not sure what Alejandros still means, but it could have something to do with Alexander. And then Zenos, the closest approximation I could come to that was on the periodic table, Xenon. And then when you look up sort of Latin roots of the word, it's like weird and strange. So I've taken that meaning for myself as the cynic philosopher, this person who, was, who set, up, set about in his life kind of challenging societal mores and use that as my own kind of mantra and mantle for my life. So that's where the Dax comes from. The Devlon, last thing I'll say, the Devlon, my mom's name is Evelyn. So I assume that it was a, a sort of a nod to her. And so the Devlon was a nod to Evelyn. That's my assumption, but no one's confirmed it yet. Okay, well, it, it's a great story. I wish I had an equally great story about my names, but I don't, so I won't try. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Can you tell us about one of the most influential moments in your life? What kind of set you on your... Mm. There's really so many stories that I'm sure I could tell, but I think for me, if I think about this particular path, one of them was... And I write about this. One of them was being arrested when I was 19 years old. 
at a protest. I always tell people I was a dilettante. I was not someone who ever thought about or interested himself in activism and social change work. But I found myself at a march that was uh, protesting something that was happening on the campus at Rutgers University. A few days later, I got a summons and I was arrested. One of only three people out of thousands of people that were there at the march, I was somehow plucked out of the crowd and arrested along with two other Black males. And I had to go to trial. And something about that experience of being shuffled through the system, it really woke me up. You know, really woke me up to how easily anyone can be brought into the system and cycle through it. So that was a, a really important turning point for me. And if I could offer like another one that I think is connected to that sure. a little bit later in life, you know, I think for me going to South Africa when I was in law school was a transformative experience. And I write about it in the book a little bit. I arrived the day that Thabo Mbeke was inaugurated as the president. And this was right after the period of Nelson Mandela's presidency. And just to be in South Africa at that moment in time to see a country in transition and the ways in which people who look like me were still suffering under the boot of oppression that was so blatant, so obvious, so present everywhere. No one seemed to question it. It was like this thing, like no one seemed to have, and I was like, it helped me start to see my own society, my own situation in a new light. And I think in many ways that experience of being in South Africa was liberatory for me. And there's so many reasons why, but those two I think were very important in terms of me understanding the political nature of my body, the political nature of my life, and therefore what am I going to do about it and with it? You know, I think it's, these stories are so perfect because you talk about being from the middle class and the ability to become educated the way that you did. And so it's really important for people to understand that when you have that experience, it's easy not to be affected if you've never been affected. That's what's so powerful about what you're saying is that when it hits, it hits hard. And what a reality check it is that doesn't matter where you grow up. If yeah. your you know, skin is brown, it's problematic potentially in terms of how society sees you. So that's powerful stories. Thank you. Thank you for mm -hmm. both of them. They're great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So talk about your business, your company, mm -hmm. uh, a Disruptive Equity Venture. Tell us what that means. Where'd that come from? Well, you know, the short answer is that it makes DEV. So you got dev, you know, so you got the next ah, dev. I missed that one, dev. Uh, I can't believe that got by me. <laughs> Oh, we did miss that. I, I consider myself <laughs> so sharp. I can't believe that got by me on you. No. So my wife was my partner and everything. You know, she and I, we were traveling and, and we were sort of playing with the idea at the time. I was running an organization and I really was thinking about my next move and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to get back into the world of consulting and be disruptive. It, to me, it's the challenge. There's a lot of ways you could show up as a consultant and it really depends on who you're there to serve. If you're there to serve power, then more than likely, it's going to be very challenging for you to be in a disruptive state. If you understand that what your role is and who you are there to do and to serve is the people, and the people is writ large, it's all people. It's like to not serve power is to different. It's to understand that it, even people who hold positional power can be beholden to power as well. So how do you even liberate those folks? So a lot of my work is about disrupting sort of the status quo. But to do it in a way that's empathetic and gentle enough to help people through that process, because it's not about just blowing something up. It's about helping people shake it up to the extent that they are ready to and willing to, 
begin to do the work they want to do in order to become who they believe that they could be and should be in the world. And that's hard because the alignment between our values, like the things we say we are, and our actions is often off because we live in a society, in a capitalist society that often requires us to do stuff that's maybe at odds with our principles and our values. So part of my work is to help people align and calibrate so that they can do that work and better congruity with what their inner hope and inner being is. Okay. And so you said that an essay called The Letter to a White Friend evolved into a book. Talk yes. to us about the essay and why you thought it was important to You know, I, I always tell people that it was not a contrived effort, you know, and I've said it so many times now, I question myself, was it contrived? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you start to say this over and over again. I do have distinct recollection of a series of phone calls that I received from my friends that generated a sense of unease inside of me. And that unease was really about the sense that even in 2020, as it was at that moment in time, my friends, my white friends in particular, were not able to connect to the ways in which the harm that we were experiencing implicated them as well. It felt as though when I was talking to them and they were calling me, it was trying to process what was happening through my experience versus through their own experience, which opened up to me a sense that we have either numbed ourselves to, my friends had either numbed themselves to or had not done the deep work throughout their lives that would allow them to be awakened to the ways in which the things that we're watching and witnessing are harming them too, are harmful to them as well. That it is not just me because I'm a black person and experience it, that experience is harm associated with oppression, that it's even people who believe themselves to be benefiting from an oppressive structure and system are actually experiencing harm in other ways. It's just that we need to help to just shift the gaze enough for them to understand what that harm actually does and how it shows up in their lives. So before you go on to say more about the essay, I just want to talk about that gaze. You know, I'm challenged by that. And I'm challenged Mm -hmm. by that after being on the earth for, you know, 62 years, because you know, noticing the gaze and making space for the gaze, it hasn't done much for us. I have tried historically to speak in a way that's comforting and creating space for white bodies and and how they are affected by this because they are psychologically, even if they don't know that they are because of the privilege. And the problem with that is that the privilege still protects. The privilege still protects. Like you go in there with all that empathy and I know there's people who are going to hear your work. I know it's important work and it's going to shift views for sure. And I wonder how much more do we have to give of ourselves to get a shift when Mm -hmm. this is not our war? It's not our Mm -hmm. war. White supremacy Mm -hmm. and racism is not ours to own. So Mm -hmm. talk to me about how you see that making a greater impact on the struggle. So I think it's always a choice that we have to make. And I made a very intentional choice when I decided to write this book in particular that I was going to engage in that work. And I recognize that particularly in 2020 and 2021, there are people who look like me who were like, Dax, what are you doing? Why are you putting your talents? I've had editors who, when I was pitching the book, they were like, brother, why are you using your talents in this way? Black editors say that to me. I think what it is for me is that I could not live And this is part of what I write about in the introduction to the book. I could not live in alignment with my own life if I didn't do this work. Because if I look at my own life, my own friendship circles that date and trace back throughout my journey from the time I was a little boy all the way to now, to even people who've opened doors for me and people who I've been in deep relationship with, I have white 
male friends throughout my story. And so in many ways, what helped me do my work was I'm going to write to them. And that's why the book is actually to my white male friends. It's yeah. not just to my white friends. It's to my white male friends. I chose a specific audience that I have a relationship with through my life and that I'm going to have relationship with to speak to about the things that I wanted to talk to, recognizing that some folks are going to turn away, recognizing that some folks are going to be in denial, recognizing that some folks are just not ready for what I have to share, but understanding that and this is the last thing I will say to understand that my life story is so different than my father's life story. It's so different than my grandfather's life story. So for me to sit here and say that there has not been change would be disingenuous. My father grew up under Jim Crow, you know, in the South. He did not have a single friend cross racial relationship that I know of throughout his life. So for me to say that there is not change and there's not work and not progress would be disingenuous. Now, what I do is I create space to protect myself and my energy. I don't respond to every email. I don't go to every book talk that people want to have me go to. I don't say yes to every single thing. The book stands for itself, actually. So if you have some questions you want to wrestle with me, I need you to do the work the book is asking you to do because the book isn't a passive experience. I didn't write it for you to just sit back and be like, oh, I feel bad for Dax. If you notice in the book, there are questions throughout and it is designed for you to challenge yourself. And the final thing I will offer is that I was very intentional about the parts of my story that I shared. My love life is not in here. There's a lot of part of my journey. You don't know everything about me because you read this book. And anybody who does, you are sadly mistaken. This is the pieces I have taken that I'm going to offer for the work that we're trying to do here. But believe you me, my story is a lot richer, deeper, and broader than what is here. And I'm not giving that away right now. I like that you made it personal to your white friends. That actually gives me some structure to imagine the potential power it has to impact its, its person. And we grow in relationship with each other. The problem with systems as it stands is that when we start talking about the progress, privilege hangs on to that. Oh, yeah. And wants to rest on it. Oh, my God. Right? Like, that's the biggest challenge for me with noting progress. Genocide's still happening. Black people are still being killed. The injustice system lives with white supremacy at the hand. So last week. It, right? Right? So I'm tenuous about talking about progress. Actually, I don't talk about progress anymore when I do teaching and consultation. I feel you. I feel you. I, feel I don't you. talk about progress anymore because I feel, I feel a sense of urgency. And I'm wondering if you have mm -hmm. that same sense of urgency or if you've been able to temper it. Uh, in a way that is digestible to meet the population that you're trying to meet, because you know you can't go in there like me. I mean, listen, the reality is I go in there like me and I go in hot. You okay. know, I think what I have is and what some people respond to, because if you listen to my talks, my talks, I, I don't hold back and I don't refrain. I think what gives me some latitude is the fact that there are parts that, you know, I'm very intentional about the structuring of my narrative as an entry point into this is, I think, the power of, you know, when I look at what it took me a long time to really appreciate what Dr. King's power and his work. Like I, for a long time, I was the person who was like, oh, he's a Santa Clausified civil yeah. rights hero. I was very yeah. dismissive of him. You know, I was way more aligned with the more radical ideas and idealism, because to me that felt, you know, it seemed to be much more about challenging the power. But when I read his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? The book he read a year before he was assassinated. I mean, that man does not play around. Right. He is holding white folks accountable 
in every possible way. So I think that people were all complex. And the reality is my voice and my message is going to look and shape show up differently in certain spaces. Absolutely. But the clarity is always going to be and accountability is always going to be there. Sometimes I might register a different tonality, but that doesn't mean I'm ever trying to in any way appease people or soften the severity and urgency of what we're up to. You know, I move in the world as a six foot one, 200 some pound black man. Like I'm very clear that what can happen to me at any given time, and that has happened to me at any given time. So I'm not unaware of the reality. I am also just trying to recognize that we have to have multiple strategies in the work that we do. And if I have some distinct role that I've been called and asked to participate and play right now, then I'm going to play that role in the way that I can. In the same way, I'm looking over here and I see such and such, they're pushing it on that level. Such and such is pushing it in that level. Everybody's pushing it together. And as long as we're aligned, we might have different work that we're doing in order to be aligned. But I hear you. And I want you to know, like, that's real. And I appreciate you. You know, and I appreciate what you're saying. What you're saying is very important. I think it's it's important that people don't see you as a homogenized. And that's why I'm pushing these questions. Yeah. Pushing these questions because I don't want people to think that you're softening the message. You know, mm -hmm. the way that you explained it is so important. So thank you for taking the time to do that. It's helpful. The other thing is that, you know, there's so much language that is homogenized now. You know, everybody can be biased. Everybody. Oh, God. I don't, that's why I don't even do implicit bias training in general. Oh. Like I'm like, because that's just unhelpful. It's not helpful work. Yeah. If you're not talking about know, systems and structures. That's not, no. <laughs> exactly. I mean, everybody has a no. DEIJ person and it's all about dropping numbers. And we still see it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. So I love that you are using your complexity to tell your truth. I think that's important. Yeah. You know, I have a question about ally versus abolitionist okay mm -hmm. do you believe in one over the other and why because i obviously have strong feelings about her else i wouldn't ask <laughs> i know i know i mean if we look at the history of, of struggle it is a history that demonstrates at least to me in my understanding that it is a minority of people who shift and move culture and that it is by and large you know a mass of people who might get on later in the game who might, you know, do something on the side that's not going to really risk too much for them, that they'll have any number of explanations and rationales for why they won't do that work of like doing abolitionist work, but will, you know, still try to in some way support the thing that you're up to, as long as it doesn't cause too much disruption to their way of being and to their well-being. I recognize that that is part of the precarious human condition. People mm. are, for the most part, oriented to protect their self-interests and it is that there are a few people who have done the work, but also who feel called to push farther and push the edges and push the abolition work. So my aspiration is for a society that doesn't need systems like a prison industrial complex. It doesn't need policing, as a matter of fact, as a form of social control. You know, we don't need to rely on hierarchy in the traditional sense that we come to understand it. And I also recognize that most people aren't ready for that. If that was to come tomorrow, they wouldn't be ready for that. So allyship, it could be a step on the path toward, there's a both end. But what my heart is with abolition, but my work is with allyship. And I respect that. You know, I started there as well. You know, again, I got the years in the game. So I started there as well. <laughs> and then I believe that I shifted because yes. I had enough allies sitting around and watching and mm. decided to challenge people to step up. I appreciate mm -hmm. where you are. I respect it totally. And I understand, you know, it's an and. 
and not an either or. I'm at the place where there's only one, get on the bus or get off. So I respect that. That's where you are. And that's beneficial because what I like about what you said before is, you know, we're all doing it in different ways. As long as we're doing it together, you know, we're headed in the same direction. I'm not going to critique another person from the community who's trying to change the narrative at all. I'm not. And that's why I wanted to engage in a conversation because I want it to be heard from a different perspective each and every time. So I appreciate that, brother. That's part of why I talk about in my book what it means to come from the class experience that I come from. I feel there's a lot of Black middle-class shame that exists in our society. Yeah, A lot of Black folks are uncomfortable naming themselves and claiming that their experience is what it is. And that shame creates a sense of a need to distance or a need to minimize. I have a lot of folks in my world who are not political or who are very dismissive of political movements that seek to do enact radical change. They're very invested in the two-party system and they're very invested in the belief that sort of progress will happen through incrementalism and through the ways in which the system can yield itself and open up change. And I think that like, I recognize that I am on my own journey as an evolving person and where I am in, at this phase and stage has something to do with, you know, being a father of young children has something to do with, you know, my background and experience, but, and there might be some evolving and shifting that happens in the years to come. But I'm also clear that like, as I look again at history, the notion that, that we have ever been a monolith and that our ideas have ever operated in a kind of monolithic fashion is not only incomplete, it is false. I mean, we live, I look at the history of political thought in our culture, in a black culture, you know, whether it's Alexander Crummel and Frederick Douglass, of course, you have you Du Bois and you have, you know, your Booker T, you have these ideas that are always operating in relationship to one another. And in many ways, they do some borrowing and shifting and, and they're always operating against the context. What I'm very clear about is the context we're moving into in 2022, 2023, 2024 is very, very scary to me because white backlash is already happening in a very deep and powerful way. And people need to be clear about that. And so part of what I do see as my work is naming that this thing that's happening right now, like this pendulum swing that's about to go down where we thought we had some momentum. This is what always happens, actually. There's always this sense that, oh, people are about to, and then we always roll it back. Exactly. And it often gets rolled back because moderates are too so quick to give ground. And so I do think that there's work to be done on calling in those moderates to say, like, you said in 2020, you were about this work. You said you were about this. So this is the moment right now. You're about it. Somebody has to talk to those people, too. And so I do want to have and engage them, because if you don't have those people in the conversation or at the table, then we are definitely in a really difficult and doomed condition if we are hoping for the political apparatus to help and support any of the movements that we care about. You know, at times I feel like we are damned if we do and damned if we don't as a Black community. You know, if we don't vote, then Virginia happens. If we do vote, (laughs) we get Biden and Kamala telling how grateful they are to the Black vote and then not showing up. So, you know, how do we convince young minds that showing up in mass for voting is what's going to move our country forward Mm -hmm. when it hasn't been? And I'm losing arguments with them trying to, you know, offer evidence that it has power. Power to do what? I mean, we literally have somebody in there who's turned his head and even Mm -hmm. said something about Rittenhouse the other day. You trust the judicials? What? Mm -hmm. Dude, this is the same system you said you were going to challenge. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? 
we always knew that we were choosing from the moment, you know, there was a point at which, and I don't know where people feel about Bernie, but there was a point at which Bernie was about to take the Democratic ticket. And it was very clear. And then everybody in the institution, at least, or at least the, the sort of political class got super nervous. Everybody peeled off, they dropped out the race and they got all their votes and they sent all their votes over to Biden. And it was very clear that he was a compromise. And it was very clear that Kamala was a compromise too. You know, she was not a radical. She never had progressive policies around the things, a lot of things that we care about. That was never the case. She was a prosecutor, a history of prosecutor. She might've, you know, we often get confused because somebody presents as a person of color that therefore they automatically have the same ideas and sort of pattern histories of resistance. And that's just not the case. So my sense is that I never expected this particular administration. In my head, I was like, this thing that is happening right here cannot stand for the next four years. We need to have this man removed. I understand he's going to try to come back in 2024. I know that. I know he's going to come back in 24, but it felt so intensely important that we at least got some room to navigate and to breathe. And even if that moment seems to have already passed, it felt important enough at that moment to move in that direction relative to the Biden Kamala Harris ticket. So I don't, I never strongly endorsed that as the ticket, but I recognize that that was the thing that we were going to be able to get in this particular climate. And yeah. that's an unfortunate thing. Yeah, you know? I appreciate you saying that. I think that's a great reframe. It's a great reframe. I mean, where <laughs> we were was desolate, desolate and disturbed. And where we are is an opportunity to breathe, if ever so lightly. Very, I mean, it's a very narrow window. It's yeah. a very narrow window. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering... How do we get the lobbyists on our side? Because that's where the power is. You know, when we talk about Bernie, Bernie was for all the right things. He absolutely was. But he was never going to win the moderate vote. He never was. And you have to include the moderates in the process because we see what happens when you don't. They show up and they take charge ultimately. I mean, there's no sense in us having this much power as a party and still not shifting a thing. How does that happen? So it's clear the moderates are still running the game and they hide behind the extremes. So uh, how, do, how, do we, how do we get some of them? I mean, you said it a minute ago. I think there's a really important question, you know, in realizing that part of my work really needs to start to incorporate a deep and critical analysis of climate injustice. I feel like there's a gap in my work has been both the intersection between climate and race and social class, but also just the recognition of the seriousness of the situation that we have. And again, someone who has small children in the world, understanding that that's a reality that they're going to have to contend with. So for me, I do think I see a younger generation, to be quite frank, that is unionizing in ways that they never unionized before, like understanding that they got power and they need to mobilize themselves that are resisting structures of power that previous generation, mine include, would never even think about pushing against and challenging. I see that folks are not capitulating in some of the ways. I'm not valorizing and saying that this generation has got all the answers, but what I'm saying is I'm seeing some evidence of a resistance in a very informed, you know, recognizing that their future is very bleak. And I think we need to, I need to be in both conversation with folks, be willing to be listening and be willing at times to follow what younger folks have to say when it comes to how we need to push and move. So if it is the case that they're saying, listen, Demo- sort of regular democratic politics are not working. I do not want to engage in that space. We need to do something else. Then I'm not going to sit there and try to always convince them that they need to go vote actually, because quite often it, the reality is we might need things to devolve and that might need to be what happens. So that is my position is like, 
I need to be clear that because of my wisdom doesn't give me all the answers. And sometimes it can actually make me less courageous than I need to be. And so therefore I need to listen to some younger folks who might be pushing for things that I am uncomfortable with and recognize that their discomfort with it is their lives, you know? It's powerful. That's really powerful. Um, You know, when we talk about, you have me deep in thought. That's why I'm saying, um, so much. I don't always say, um, in between. (laughs) thinking and talking at the same time and i'm like trying to be suave bold over here and deep in my uh, thoughts great though i love uh, this you know so, i like it say it again i feel challenged and i like it and I appreciate oh yeah it. Thank yeah you. thank this, you this is this is what i love you know we talk about you make an excellent point with the young people and yeah. the system may have to devolve before it can rebuild my concern is the same people being impacted who are always impacted in that process, right? So the pandemic hit and who's hurt the most, the marginalized community and the poor community. We let things go. We don't vote. We wait till we rebuild. We lose a whole contingency of people who can't thrive. They don't have a medical system that works for them. They don't have jobs that pay enough. And so how far does it have to go before we, as a country, as a community, I mean, you know, the global majority, I think there's some work that has to be done inter-community. I I, I feel you. You know what I'm saying? Like the global majority needs to get on the same page because that's really what's going to create an effect change. I mean, I think our sort of orientation towards everything United States is very intentional and purposeful and it keeps us from really aligning and connecting ourselves to people who have aligned struggles with us around the globe, you know, to the point that I made earlier around my travels, you know, to Africa, but to other parts of the world. They were not just eye-opening in the sense of like an experience, but they were eye-opening in the recognition that the ways in which imperialism operated in certain countries mirrors the ways in which capitalism, you know, the United States does not like to identify itself as an imperialist nation, but the ways in which I have experienced and my people have experienced it here. So that cross-cultural, cross-national, whatever you want to call it, dialogue and alliance and building is very important. And And the questions you raise, I think the ones that keep me up, that stump me, that make me wonder, like, what are we accomplishing? What are we doing? What has changed? It is absolutely the case that the same people continue to be experiencing marginalization every time, every single time. And the same people seem to be very callous towards that and very indifferent towards that. I think some of it has to do with us really continuing to build the bridge of the BIPOC identity. You know, I think being, I'm very centered and clear around my Black identity, and I very much prioritize that identity in the world. And I recognize that it is very important to continue to bring in and connect with other peoples and movements, you know, Native folks in this country. I got to connect and understand and be able to be in alignment with them. Other immigrant communities, that has to be part of our work, because that's where alliances live. And that's where the power can live, because we're 15%. And yeah. that 15% is split all the time, yes. you know, and a lot of them can't even vote. So, you know, that always puts us at a structural, not just a disadvantage, but structurally it puts us almost in a position of inability to actually win outside of a place like DC where I live, you know? So I think it, that is, that's just so important. It just resonates with me so deeply. One of the challenges for the black community is that we're not immigrants. You know, the African-American I'll say, Right. Uh, are not right. immigrants. We don't have the immigrant right. mentality. We weren't coerced for a better land. We weren't convinced there was something beyond the horizon. So, right. you know, I do a lot of teaching around understanding the African-American experience versus the Black immigrant experience versus the other immigrant experience. And to yeah. help people understand there is a difference in perspective. And if we don't educate around that, you know, I'm starting to wonder, 
We spend so much energy educating individual groups of people. And I'm just wondering what that would look like if we turn that energy to the global majority and start mm. creating a connection that has to do with you are not my enemy. You know, yeah. white supremacy has taught you to be my enemy. It has been victorious based in our grievances with each other that are really don't even exist. It's totally created by the system. So how do we get the system to change if we don't get it to change amongst the global majority? And it is by no fault of our own. It oh. is designed this way. I mean, I think that definitely has to be you know, and I know this word gets used a whole lot, but some real radical healing that people have to go through and experience, because I feel like part of what attaches people to their specific identity and identity issues and the inability to really connect them more broadly to other people with whom they are adjacent to and have real aligned interests is a sense that their own grievance has not been resolved. And a sense that if I connect my issues with yours, mine will get lost and yes. I won't get what I need. And as long as I feel that way, that sense of scarcity, that sense that if I somehow connect with you, you know, somebody who's in the LGBTQ, then I'm going to somehow get diminished. Yes. And I won't get what I need. I think we're going to struggle. So I do feel like the work, self-care, healing, all that stuff is so, so critical because we recognize that folks are so traumatized and have done such little work on their, their own personal pains, the things, I talk to folks who read my book and they contract to their own experiences in schools. Like I have black folks that I meet who contract to their own experiences in white institutional structures and the pain that they've had and the sense of being overlooked and the sense that they didn't get an opportunity and they haven't processed it. They haven't come to terms with it, therefore haven't had a chance to heal from it. So it still sits inside this, like as a thing that's been hardened over, but never really healed. And so I yeah. do think that a lot of that work has to happen for people. If we're going to connect to an idea of a global majority, there has to be some starting point for some people. And that requires some individual work around healing. You know, the system even oppresses that idea. The idea that Black people and people from the global majority can access therapy easily is a misnomer. <laughs> you know, it's how do we, uh, you know, affect an opportunity to heal and change when it's so difficult to get that insurance to find a clinician of color who can afford to walk you through that journey, particularly if they haven't done their own racial identity work. It's very complex. You know, I think we agree it's very complex. And the system is always working. The idea that the Asian community found out that they were not the ideal community when they got attacked. And that's what the white supremacy has led them to believe. You're protected. You're the preferred minority. And then when the attacks came, you know, a jolting wake up call. And so what does white supremacy do before we align ourselves with each other? Anti-Asian hate bill. Let's nip that in the book. Right. So that quiets it down and doesn't, it's not the catalyst we had hoped for us to align with each other. The same thing with the Middle Eastern community when everything happened, 9-11 and so forth, right? Finally, we get some allegiance. It taps into something though. It's, and what you're saying is so spot on. And I think, you know, there's obviously some deep intersections in that, even in Asian identity. Of course, there's folks, of course. you know, that you mean, and I think we know that there's you know, some deep intersections and there are people Absolutely. And thank you for who are saying doing, who are doing deep work in there that are trying to, shake their own people like, yo, stop being mad at black people. That's a conditioned thing to think that somehow black people are the problem and cause all these issues. And that's what you've been conditioned to believe. So there are folks that are doing that work. And I think to your point, the challenge though, nevertheless, is like the enticements of a society, the enticements of access are so, so alluring. They're just too seductive for people. I get so disheartened. I think, for instance, when I see New York City, you have 
Asian communities that are resisting the idea that we need to radically rethink the way public education operates because so few kids of color, like black and brown kids, are even getting a chance to access the best schools. But you know, our Asian brothers and sisters see that as a threat to their positionality. And then I see the same thing at the lawsuit at Harvard, where you have students of Asian descent arguing that they are somehow being prejudiced or discriminated against because the school is seeking to try to, to achieve some other kinds of balance. So mm -hmm. it's this notion that we have this very linear notion of merit, this very hyper-specific quantitative idea of what achievement looks like, and that because certain people are able to check that box and do that in a way that white supremacy can value, valorize, and then give opportunities to, it makes people feel as though they are entitled to everything that they are mm. in and they are resistant to any other ways of thinking about the world or even resistant to the idea that they have been themselves conditioned and therefore become pawns in a project that has everything to do with the continued diminishment of and marginalization of darker people around the world. So it's that collusion that happens and yeah. it's the seduction of the collusion that happens and it gets played out in our most esteemed institutions because they operate on a very scarcity mindset. Harvard could educate all the students that they want to, right. but it chooses to educate a very few because it wants to keep that thing that it values, which is this distinct proposition of a degree only available to a few people, right? Because that then filters into all sorts of opportunities later in life and then opportunities for one's children and one's grandchildren. But as long as that kind of a system is the system that we aspire to, we're going to have this disarray mm -hmm. and this inability to unite around a common issue and a common challenge, which is white supremacy. And I like the way you note that this disillusionment, this collusion is mm. so connected to capitalism. You know, we can't ever lose sight of that. And we can't ever lose sight of the fact that white supremacy does not want to change, no. does not want to change. It's working. It's working in many ways. And, you know, I think people often are uncomfortable naming capitalism. I'm very clear. I live in a capitalist society. I participate mm. in it in a lot of ways. And I don't necessarily, that doesn't mean that I don't see that it is deeply flawed at this point in time, particular flawed system. We saw last year the gains that billionaires had as a result of a crisis. As the result of a health crisis, we saw people's wealth tripled, quadrupled. We saw, what does that tell you? That tells us something very profound about a system that we've engineered in that it's, run, it's running roughshod over people. And we are very, I think, callous towards that. And our desire then just becomes to be participants within it. It becomes like the best thing you can do is to find a way to get your million. The best thing you can do is to try to find a way to get yourself safe, but none of us gets free. That's the whole thing. It's like, that's the illusion. Like you don't get free because you got some money. You don't get you know, free because you have some education. Absolutely. It doesn't work that way. Absolutely. But that's where the code switching gets challenged, you know, because when you have had some education and you start to enjoy some of the capitalism, so many people, Forget to switch back, what Dr. William Cross once said. <laughs> <laughs> forget to switch back, reach back, forget, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's all about proximity, as we're talking about. It's all about proximity. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're naming right here. Mm -hmm. You're naming mm -hmm. about proximity. If I keep ordering so many things from Amazon, you know, I'll be closer to what? No, yeah. you're just feeding the monster. Right. And at the same time, we want to keep working people employed. You know, right. Walmart, right. there's no bigger right. monster than Walmart. You right. can't find poor people suffering at the hands of Walmart and yet right. pouring money into Walmart because it's difficult to separate from the beast who's feeding you. Right, right. It's fascinating, though, because one of the things we did see last year was how quickly things can shut down. 
Yes. And if things can shut down that quickly, things can be reimagined and reorganized as well. And I think that's what was so scary for people and why they were so desperate to get everything back rolling again, because it's almost like this idea the emperor has no clothes or the wizard. Exactly. And the curtain goes up and like, yo, exactly. get that curtain back down. Because they start to see this is, oh, we could reimagine this. I've talked to friends who are educators and I think my friends who are teachers in particular in the K-12 school systems, the level of disheartenment, and even that's even a word that they're feeling right now, the level of, there was a sense of possibility at one yeah. point. And that possibility got bureaucratized out. That possibility got hierarchized out. It got put back in its place. And now we just have the system. So I have friends who are principals and leaders, and they're like, they're very clear now that they're just middle managers. And they're just clear that their job is to keep the thing moving. Like there is not going to be a new emphasis on social emotional learning. There, anything that was going to in any way help us reimagine this education system is now been completely marginalized. You might have some virtual school happening now. You might have some autonomy, like there's some more asynchronous learning happening, but it didn't change the thing that people thought was possible in April and May of last year and June and July of last year. That has gone all of a sudden. That door seems to have closed. And I think that's very disheartening for a lot of folks who felt for this moment, oh, wow, yeah. we could do something different here. Even though we're looking at a collapse, we're looking at a crisis, this crisis is an opportunity. And it feels like, folks, we didn't run through that door in the ways that we could have run through that door. We started to fight. We started to nitpick at each other. We started to tear each other down. We started to allow that thing, that white supremacy, to insert doubt. So you started to see all these John McWhorter articles showing up in the New York Times. Sort of he's the voice that is constantly badgering and badgering and badgering anything that is attempting to address white supremacy. And he just is that voice. And, and that voice, he presents as a voice, not to pick on him, but he's a very important voice in that regard because he creates a cover for a whole range of people. I even know many of them who were already seeking to discredit anything that was addressing white supremacy, anything that was trying to call out anti-racism. We're seeing it, but I'm not without hope. We're in a fight. We're just in that fight now. Yeah. It's being named in a way that's different than before. And that's what I hear you saying. I hear you saying, you know, disheartened doesn't mean giving up. It means reimagining, as you said, and figuring out how to do it differently. Susie had a question before. I want to get her in before we wrap up. Susie had a question? Are we wrapping? <laughs> yes, we are wrapping. <laughs> this has been a really powerful conversation. What I, was your question? I have a question about the book. And personally, when you wrote it, were you surprised by your white male friends, any of their responses? Was there defensiveness, fragility? Was there anything that surprised you about any of your personal friends who wrote the letters to? So there's these two different camps, basically, I have encountered, right? The one camp is folks who were like, thank you. I needed that. You offered something to me that I had not received before in the way that it had been delivered to me. And here's some things that I want to do as a result of that. I was a point in, when the book first came out, you know, I had however many folks talking, this is my idea, Dax. I, this is what I would like to try to do. This is the way I want to use my influence. And then I said, well, maybe not do that. Let's think about it this way. You know, like, like everybody would call me, like, I want to do a fellowship with Howard University. I'm like, well, there's other HBCUs besides Howard. So we can, so we can go to some other places, right? But like, they were at least coming with some ideas. And so there's that camp. And then there's another camp that was silent. And I know when that silence was, 
because I know that silence, that's white male silence. I've seen it all my life. It's when I don't like the conversation, I'm just going to be silent. Uh, when I don't like the conversation, I'm going to leave. Or if I can't change the conversation, I'm just going to find a way to undermine the conversation, right? And I know that happens. And I know that's what's going on in a lot of space. I read a couple of reviews. I'm like, this is exactly what I would expect you to have written. This is exactly what I would expect you to have written. You have not surprised me in the least. You know, you either A, didn't fully understand, and B, you used your terms on which to kind of create the sort of grounds upon which we're going to have this discussion about the merits of my ideas. I'm clear that a book like mine, a small book, it's meant to be emissive in many ways, and it's going to hit certain people, and hopefully it hits certain people over a period of time, and it might do some shifting of their work. I know that there are groups of men who've collected, who've organized themselves and done work in groups around my book. I know that happens, but I also know that, you know, to the other point, like, I have friends who I have notably pulled back from our relationship in the last year. Mm -hmm have notably sort of not really wanted to engage with me about a variety of things. And I know it's probably because of their views and they're uncomfortable with the idea that I'm presenting a worldview that they genuinely are resistant to and won't even allow deep inquiry of actually because it presents too many troubling possibilities for how their lives are organized. Mm -hmm. You know, the reality is I've had to engage in that kind of work in order to survive. Like I had to. In order for me to survive in your world, I had to go through the crucible to go some deep, deep, deep work around myself. And so I'm clearer, not clear all the way, but I'm clearer. But I think a lot of folks at this point in their lives, the risk is too great for them to engage in the kind of work that would be required of them because it would unravel some of the things that they have deeply, deeply believed in and feel a deep relationship to. Yeah. You know, I think it's important that we don't let people think, our guest last week spoke to this really well, that we don't let people think being competent is a destination. You know, it's like the Buddhism within <laughs> <laughs> Buddhism, they never, the inner peace is, is a constant journey. Same yeah, thing yeah. with competency. Yeah. You know, one is not competent, particularly yeah. when it's not your life experience. So I think that's an important emphasis. And the other thing is that, you know, leadership always wants to expand the conversation when we haven't dealt with the issue of oppression and marginalization in its I original know. form. Right. So whenever, you know, whenever we talk about racism and now we've elevated to white supremacy, we don't even really say racism anymore. We call it what it is, white supremacy. Then it's like, well, what about the other community? I know. I know. You, you know, an know. expansion yeah. to distract is what I, I call know. it because it's not like it cares really about. It's not even fascinating. What I have learned in my work to prepare for, people are going to try to, how do we make this bigger? That's what they'll say. We don't want this to only be about, you know, those are the prefatory remarks that lead into so black true. people, right? <laughs> you know, those are the five words that lead into about, but, you know, or I hear like, we're doing really good when it comes to yeah. women, meaning white women, right? They're right. doing really good on that. And like, what's well, because you haven't actually made any effort to do it. And because there may be some underlying beliefs around why we're not actually in the room. And those underlying beliefs might actually have to do with lack of competency, you know, all sorts of things. I, so part of my work is I want folks to interrogate what the diva beliefs are. And I know in your work, like, I want you to not just say white supremacy is bad. I want you to interrogate the yes. deeper beliefs that you have that yes. might be operating for you in your own journey. Because if you drive through a, a neighborhood of color, a black neighborhood, and you feel uncomfortable, just because you drove through a Black neighborhood, if you feel like anything that is produced by a Black creative is therefore of lesser value and therefore worthy of lesser, sort of a lesser attention, those things can operate 
in a very unconscious way and get normalized because so many other people are doing the same. But I do want people to challenge themselves, not just to look, name the system, but name how it operates within you. That's so true. that's part of what my work is. I'm gonna name how it operates because it worked on me too. It works on everybody. It does its work on all of us. It's the question of, are you gonna try to unlearn how it's worked on you? And I don't think a lot of folks really wanna do the unlearning work so that they can build something new. You know, you said it works on us. It does. I mean, we've internalized the oppression from racism. We have heard those comments, those remarks, those sort of stories that have led us to believe the same thing. We're starting to break out of it, but it's so unconscious that it's so much part of our inner work and validation for each other, which is why I deeply value conversations like this. Uh, that's look, we've talked for almost an hour, clearly could have talked for another hour. <laughs> so hopefully you promise to come back and we can re-engage because this has been powerful. I really respect what you're doing. We appreciate you. you coming Thank on. You. you know, I love chopping up with you. It's just, just deeper and deeper. And that's where I like to go. That's so right. I appreciate you, man. Likewise, likewise. I appreciate y'all for doing the work that you do for creating space for yourselves to like present to your audiences, new ideas, new people, challenging viewpoints. I'm in gratitude. Like I'm really grateful to y'all. I hope you have a Wonderful holiday season, whatever you celebrate, however you right celebrate, on. that at least there's some rest, some family, and some good food in there, some nourishment. And then we got work to do in 2022, so let's get back on it. Right on. Well said. I'm going to let it in there. Thank you, brother. Much appreciation. Right. Peace, peace, peace. Thank you. And JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.